guys doing well? You guys ready for this? A little Bible study? Maybe a big Bible study, huh? Here we go. Exodus chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Exodus chapter 7. We'll look at that whole chapter here this morning. Exodus, the way out. We're going to talk about the grace to the humble. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? To the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So it sounds like to me we need to learn how to be humble, don't we? Because if you want his grace, I mean, the worst thing that could happen to you is to have God oppose you. The best thing that could ever happen to you is to have uh, God before you and give you his grace. And so that to get that, you need to be humble. And so we need to understand what that means. We all need humility. Some of us will embrace it willingly and others will, and others will have it forced upon them by God himself. One way is the easy way, one way is the hard way. Philippians 2 makes it very clear that one of these days, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So I, I kind of, I, I want to be a part of the group that bows now rather than later, because if you wait until later, that's not necessarily a good thing. And so if you want God against you, be proud like Pharaoh. We'll see that in, in our story if you want God to be for you, be humble like Moses. So the proud, the proud like Pharaoh are less than they imagine. They are legends in their own mind. You've heard that statement before. But the humble like Moses are more than they ever dreamed. So where are we in the story? of uh, the book of Exodus. Well, right here, we are now entering the great conflict between Yahweh, the one true God, and the false gods of the Egyptians. And the central question in the book of Exodus is, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? We saw Moses asking that question. He's now being convinced of who God is, who Yahweh is. And, and now we've come across the, that question being asked by Pharaoh, who is the Lord? And the book of Exodus is not just about redemption. We, we've talked about this. So what's the big, big idea of the book of, uh, of Exodus? Redemption, yeah, to set free. Uh, liberation, salvation. But it's not just about redemption, but it's also about revelation of God who makes himself known. Now listen, uh, this thing's going, isn't it? Okay. See, it's not just me, huh? Okay. This thing keeps going in and out. I don't know why, but we'll figure it out here. Maybe I need to have this little wire out here somewhere so it's catching that. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So one of, uh, most of our problems are due to the fact Hey, could you push me a little bit? Some of our problems are due to the fact, that's sounding a little bit better, is due to the fact that we have such a low view of God. All of our problems are rooted in the fact that we just don't see God for who he is. We are overwhelmed by the trials of life in direct proportion to our high or low view of God. We are overtaken by the temptations of life in direct proportion to our higher low view of God. So one of the reasons why I wanted us to study through the book of Exodus is I want you to have a high view of God. And so the book of Exodus is not just a book about redemption. It's about giving us a high view of God. It's, it's about the revelation of who God is, of who God is. And... Uh, and so that's, uh, as you've heard me say before, the deeper the theology, the deeper the theology, the study of God, the higher the doxology, doxology, worship of God, and the healthier the psychology. A healthy psychology, yeah, life-liberating, soul-satisfying, God-glorifying kind of life. That's what we all want. That's what we desperately need. But it starts with, with deep, deep theology. Deep theology, study of God, will produce in us, it should produce in us a, uh, 
a doxology, a, a high doxology, which is worship of God, which brings uh, such amazing health. So we've got a lot of work cut out for us here this morning. As you can see, and uh, we're going to read the text completely through, and then we'll work through the notes in just a moment. But let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. We need his help on this one, as we do every week. So here we go. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. Um, You oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. Help us to see that the absolutely worst thing in life and eternity would be to have you oppose us. But the absolutely best thing in life and eternity would be to have your gracious, undeserved, supernatural presence, power, and peace. And all we need to receive your grace is need. And there's a lot of folks that don't have that because of pride. And God, I know that I struggle with that. And I know that there are many others here that struggle with that. So in light of your holiness and our sinfulness, help us to see the reality of our desperate neediness for you and your amazing grace, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. So as I read through the text here, look for and compare the humble heart of Moses with the hard, proud heart of, of Pharaoh. Just look at this contrast. You're going to see it as we work through this. And then we'll unpack it through our notes and try to figure out where we might be, hard heart or soft heart, humble heart. So starting in verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. That's actually a mark of humility here that we would be used by God to convey who God is to others. Verse 2, you should speak all that I command you, also a sign of humility, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of, out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. There's, there's that hard heart. There's pride. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. There you go. There's humility. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 7, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. I love that. They're in the last third of their life. How old is Moses going to live to be? Anybody know? 120. 120. And so he's in the last third of his life. Let me see. There's a number of you that are in the last third of your life. Okay? Some of you are in the last third of your life. I'm in the last third of my life if I live to be 120. No, if I live to be, uh, if I live to be uh, 80, I'm 61. The average male only lives to be about 75, female 78. So if I'm pushing it if I hit 80. And so that would be the last third of my life. I'm in the last third of my life. Ministry doesn't start happening for for Moses and his brother Aaron until they're in their 80s. So this whole idea about retirement, like I'm just going to kick back on the beach in California and hang out and play softball with my friends and all. Wait, 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 wait. That's all good. You can do some of that. But man, ministry, you're just, you're ready to go. You just got warmed up until you hit the, third, the last third of your life. That's what's so, so profound about this. These guys are old dudes, and God's going to use them more powerfully now than he ever has. So don't ever think that, oh, I'm, I'm coming down. They need to put me out to pasture. I'm, I'm, it's all over for me. No, 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 no. That's okay. I've said enough about that. Maybe it's because I'm old and I'm getting older. But that's true, and you can see it right there. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, 
Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. I Check this out. I love this. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. <laughs> Bam! Take that. There's a big lesson right there, okay? Oh, yeah? Watch this. That's good. But notice this, verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had commanded. That's called pride. It's a hard heart. Now we come to the first plague, and we're going to spend, I'm going to just, we're just going to go into the first plague because there's 10 plagues, and next week we're going to do a survey of all the plagues, and we're going to cover about three or four chapters. We'll take it all the way to chapter 11, but it'll just be a survey. We'll just have to hop, skip, and jump through it. But I wanted to read this, uh, this plague here. I think it's important to what we're studying here this morning, this idea of grace to the humble. And so, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. There's almost this little attitude of like persistence. He's going to go out to the water. He's going to go over to the Nile. And so I want you to kind of go out there and and meet him out there at the Nile. And in fact, what you're going to see is that Moses is going to be a thorn in Pharaoh's side. Now, remember always before, uh, Moses said, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. Now he's going to come after Pharaoh in a major way. And you're going to see there's there's something that's trans... that has transformed the heart of Moses along with with Aaron. And so, uh, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of of Egypt over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, of water so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded And in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is an interesting verse here. We'll come back to it also in our notes. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take, he did not take even this to heart. Don't confuse me with the facts I've already made up my mind. That's that's pride. I don't even want to reflect on this. I've already decided what I'm going to do here. So there's no challenge to him intellectually whatsoever. He's already made up his mind. Verse 24, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's talk about humble people. You can see there quite a number of uh, points, statements, and I think we're going to be able to draw from this text 
of what it means to be a humble person because this is pretty big. I want to be humble. I want to receive his grace. You don't want to be full of pride because God opposes you. And I can't help but think that oftentimes you're going to see in our definition of pride is that God is opposing some of you and you don't even realize it because you've got pride in your life and you don't see your pride. So you're going to want to uncover that and see that. And so here's the first point on your notes. Humble people don't think less of themselves but think of themselves less Self-forgetfulness or blessed self-forgetfulness. That's a statement by C.S. Lewis. Now, there's an amazing transformation that is happening in Moses' life from self-absorption to God-absorption. So when you go from pride to humility, you're moving from uh, a self-absorbed life to a God-absorbed life. And you see this transformation happening in Moses' life. Let me kind of walk you through uh, the last the chapters we've been looking at. Remember in Exodus 4, when uh, Moses said, uh, God said, I want you to go to Egypt, and he said, and he goes through all these excuses, and then finally at the end we realize he doesn't have any excuse whatsoever. He just doesn't want to go. I won't go. That's very self-absorbed. I'm telling you, you need to go. I won't go. That's Exodus 4. And then in Exodus 5, verses 20 through 23, so you're beginning to see some transformation takes place. He says to God, God, you're not doing your part. Why did you ever send me? So he's gone into, into Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's resistant, has a hard heart, and he's just like, he's struggling with all of this. And then we move to Exodus chapter 6, verse 30, where he says, I'm a sinner. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And now we come to Exodus 7, and it says over and over again, Moses did just as the Lord commanded. So what in the world happened to Moses' heart? Well, he went from self-absorption to a God-absorbed life. He went from pride to humility. God is still continuing to work in his life. Now, now this is how it typically happens. Would you say that we live in a pretty proud country? And some of that pride can be good, but it can be very bad too. So what is the bad kind of pride? Well, the bad kind of pride is, is based on our rebellion to God, so it goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They thought God was holding out on them, and so in pride, we rebel against God, and that spiritual alienation creates within us a psychological alienation. It creates a self-absorption, and, uh, and then it creates all sorts of problems. Then everything in life becomes a means to the end of trying to satisfy that self-absorption. Why would we have self-absorption? Because, because of this. We were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the eyes of our creator and have him give to us all of the uh, acceptance, security, and significance we would ever need. That we would ever need. But when we turn our back on God, that creates a psychological alienation. The spiritual alienation creates a psychological alienation. I immediately go from, from being God-absorbed to self-absorbed and with this desperate neediness to fill this void inside of me. And, and that's, that's what happens. That's exactly what happens. And that self-absorption, nothing makes you more miserable and less interesting than self-absorption. And um, so, I, you know, I was, I was thinking about, so what does that self-absorption look like? Jonathan Edwards did some, uh, did some great reading, uh, some great writing. 18th century American theologian on, on pride. And uh, I've kind of paraphrased it a little bit and put it in bullet points. So I've got eight bullet points to kind of reveal our pride for us so that we can see this is what self-absorption looks like. So let me kind of walk through this with you. Uh, so one, secret, it's a secret enemy. Pride is a secret enemy. The more you have, the less you can see. That makes sense, doesn't it? The more you have, the less you can see. We are always, always the last to see our self-absorption, aren't we? Okay, tell someone that loves us enough to say, hey, you know, you're a pretty self-absorbed person. No, I'm not. Mm-mm. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's really, uh, pride is like carbon monoxide poisoning. You guys know what, what that does? If you've got carbon monoxide poisoning coming into your house, we've heard the, the, the terrible stories of people being poisoned by carbon monoxide. You don't know that it's poisoning you, but it, it'll kill you. 
eventually, little by little. Here's another one. It's a fault finder. It's critical of others. Very hypercritical of others. Number three, it's, it has a harsh spirit. It's condescending, commanding, condemning. That sounds like religious people, doesn't it? That's what religious people are very, very much like that. Uh, it's, it, it's about putting on pretense. It can't share false feelings and failures. Not very authentic, not very vulnerable, because I got to put on the pretense. I got to impress. Got to prove myself to others. Uh, number five, easily offended. Thin-skinned, not teachable, defensive. If someone were to come to you and say, hey, I've noticed some things in your life that I think that uh, are potentially bad, and I'd like to be able to speak into your life some of those things, talk to you about those things, how would you respond? Okay, are you able to hear the truth? Can you speak the truth to others with a, with a bit of humility? Number six, presumption before God and man. It's an attitude. Presumption is an attitude of entitlement. Do we see a lot of that in our culture? Boy, ever. I mean, I've seen it among Christians. God, I've come to church. I read my Bible. I pray. You owe me. People that say that don't know the gospel. And then there's a hunger for attention. There's, and it comes in a couple different forms. We'll talk more about it. Uh, there's, so there's this hunger for attention because, I mean, think about this. We've turned away from God. We've turned away from God, and now we're trying to find and fill this emptiness on our own. So it's going to become, we become self-absorbed. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove to people that I matter. Wait, wait, wait. God has already told you that you matter, but since you've turned and and you've rebelled against him, that, that spiritual alienation has created a psychological alienation within you. So it's hungry for attention, and, it's in, and it can be in the form of both superiority or inferiority. There's almost this towering, there's towering over certain people, and then there's this cowering over other people. It's like, oh. It drives a lot of our uh, idol worshiping in our culture today, uh, you know, how we put people on a pedestal, rock stars, movie stars, athletic stars, oh, we make a big deal about them, and uh, it's just, it's, it's really interesting. Here's the eighth one, neglecting others. It becomes thick-skinned, insensitive to the needs and feelings of others, and that makes sense. I mean, you're, if you're self-absorbed, you can't think about other people's needs. You're trying to fill an emptiness inside. You're desperate to fill that emptiness inside, and so did, did I get everybody on that one, on, the, on that list? Do I need to read it again? No? Okay, because I can read it again just to make sure that we got you on the list here. Because I'll guarantee you, if you look close enough, every, I struggle with, with these, many of these, if not all of these. My wife would say, all of these. And I'd say, you too. In fact, I got your name by some of them. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good one. That's a good list. And so, that's, so we're looking at Moses and just the transformation that took place in his life. And so, so humble people don't think less of themselves, but think of themselves less as a blessed self-forgetfulness. Why? Here's the next point. Because they have a superior satisfaction in God that overpowers their self-absorption, their, their glory hunger. Now, there's a couple verses here that I want you to see. Here's what we're looking at. We're looking at the etiology of, of Moses and why did he go from being self-absorbed to God-absorbed. So we're looking at that. What, is that. what do we need to know so that we can have that take place in our lives? And so humble people have a superior satisfaction in God that overpowers their self-absorption, their, their glory, hunger. Uh, Galatians 5.26, it says, uh, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. When we provoke one another, we're, we're towering over them, picking fights, like to stir it up. There's this, there's an, uh, it's driven by pride. Another way pride is, is seen in our envying of one another, that's more of that inferiority complex kind of uh, cowering towards others. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. So rivalry is this competitiveness, competing with others, comparing yourself with others, or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So in both of these verses, uh, Galatians 5.26 and Philippians 2.3, there's the word conceit. It's a fascinating word. 
And, and it means, if you were to read the King James Version, it would use the word vain glory. And the word vain means empty. Glory means weight, significance, importance, or that you matter. And so you empty, you are empty of glory. Conceit means that you are empty of glory, that you're not spending enough time looking into the face of your maker through his word, through worship, and receiving all of the glory that you would ever need to be able to face the difficulties of life. That's what it means, conceit. Don't let conceit take hold of your life. So you become glory hunger. You have this glory hunger hungry. So the, the, when you look at pride, the, there's, there's polar opposites in pride. There's the self, the self-absorption of this glory hungry. Uh, there's boasting, and then there's also self-pity. So boasting is a superiority. I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished Look at me, look how great I am. And then there's also the opposite of that, uh, the other, it's, it's still all pride, would be, uh, it's not the opposite, but it's, it's another form of pride. It, it is self-pity, and that's inferiority. I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. So you've heard me say this before, helping a person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them stuck in their self-absorption. So you're thinking, well, how are you supposed to help? A, I, I got friends that are just down in the dumps and they're, they're all bummed out and they've got a lot of self-pity and it's like, oh, poor, I'm just, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I would, you know, life's not working out the way I want to. What, should, you know, what, what do I tell them? How do I, how do I get them to work through that? Well, don't just, don't just say, no, you can do it. You can do it. Don't become like their little cheerleader, you know, like, come on, you can pull yourself up. And, and I, hey, listen, I understand. What's, it's been fascinating. How many have been watching the Olympics? You guys been watching the Olympics? Okay. It's fascinating to hear how some of these, when they win the, win the gold or, or whatever, or if they don't, how they respond. Now, I know that a lot of them have kind of been trained on how to respond. They have maybe a publicist that kind of helps them to make sure to put on a good public image or whatever, but it's fascinating to see how, how people in general, all of us too, how do we respond to success and failure? What does that tell us about us, where we get our sense of glory, and, and why we are empty, and what fills us up? And so it's, it's fascinating, but when you've got a friend that's down in the dumps, what would you, how would you encourage them? See, the worst thing you can do is to be their little cheerleader and to get them to, you know, oh, no, no, you're really a, oh, no, you're a good person, and you can do it. And you, what, By the way, this is what you hear a lot. I've already heard this a lot on the Olympics. You can accomplish whatever you set your mind to. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I'd like to fly, but it doesn't matter how much I flap my wings and set my mind to that. I'm not going to fly or flap my arms. I don't have wings, do I? <laughs> that sounded weird. Okay. And so I'm like, you can, that's ridiculous. That's the stupidest statement in America. You can be whatever you set your mind to. No, you can't. Sorry. <laughs> if you believe that, you've been telling all your friends that. I mean, here, here's, what, here's how you respond to that. You don't, their problem is that they're self-absorbed. That's why they're down in the dumps. Self-pity, self whether it's boasting or self-pity, self-pity comes from being self-absorbed. I can't do anything. Now, I understand if you want to help give a little perspective, and maybe they are shooting way below their potential because of being an image bearer of God, and you can talk to them about that. But ultimately, the potential that they have comes from God. It's not about them. It's about God. And if their performance is below their potential, certainly you can boost them a little bit. You can help them. But, but here's the deal uh, with that is that you can say, yeah, 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 you are a pathetic loser. <laughs> no, don't say that. I'm just joking. But in a sense, you probably should say that. But yeah, yeah, you are, you are messed up, and I am too. And we, we're desperate for Jesus, aren't we? And what's interesting about Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he's in prison, and he's taken a beating and yet the context is telling us that he's 
unbelievably content. And Paul says in 4.13, he doesn't say, I can do all things, I can do all things, I can do all things, I can do all things. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The worst thing that he could do is, I can do all things, I can do all things, I can do whatever I set my mind to. That's self-absorption. Get your, get your eyes off of you and put them on Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God is with me. He is for me. He will never leave me or forsake me. I have the wealth of heaven on my side. See, that's, those are the things that you would want to say to them to kind of help them to get their eyes off of themselves and start putting them on, on Christ. And um, we... To crave for human approval through boasting or self-pity is saying that God is not enough. I wrote down a few other statements here that I found that uh, as I was reflecting on the message here this morning, let me just read some of these statements. uh, That you will either be living to justify yourself or you will be living because you are justified. So there's that, that emptiness that drives that. In the gospel, our identity is not based on what we achieve, but what we receive that has been achieved for us. We receive it. It's not based on your performance. And, um, and so... It's based on our dependency upon Christ. We get it from him. That's the next point on your notes. So we're still working on Moses, this etiology of what went on in his life. And so we've said uh, humble people don't think less of themselves but think of themselves less, self-forgetfulness, because they have a superior satisfaction in God that overpowers their self-absorption, their glory, hunger. And that's because they delight in being desperately and totally dependent upon God. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. In Philippians 3, Paul goes through this whole list of accomplishments and achievements and accolades, and they're, they're pretty brilliant. He's a, he was a brilliant guy in so many different ways. And uh, basically, he's just saying, hey, listen to me. All the trophies, all the gold medals, all of that is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ as my Savior, is what he's saying. He said, my identity is not in all these accomplishments, and glory be to God because of those accomplishments, because that's how he's wired me up. He's given me this potential, but ultimately, I have him, and that's what matters most. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says this, and remember the, the thorn in his flesh, this chronic pain, we don't even know what it is, but it really got him down, and he cries out to God. It says, three times I cried out to him, I couldn't make it, I can't do this. Anybody ever been there before? Yeah. He cries out to God. He says, God. And God responded to him. His Savior said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, the context of this is what he's saying here is is where Paul has had this phenomenal revelation. You know the first part of that chapter, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians? He had this revelation. He went to the third heaven, had this encounter with God. It was amazing. And so God has given him this thorn in the flesh to humble him. What? Yeah, why would God do that? Because pride is so twisted, it takes credit for anything good, even vivid visions of God's glory. So the guy could say, hey, man, me and God, we're like this, we're like close, and I had this revelation, and that makes me, wait, 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 wait that's called pride. And so that's, that's why. Here's what's fascinating about the, the, um, the Christian life, spiritual growth as as compared to physical growth. Physical growth means taking on more and more responsibilities so that we become less and less dependent upon our parents. That's what we want for our kids, to get out on their own. But spiritual growth is is opposite. We don't become better and better so that we need God less and less. 
No, as we mature, we learn to grow more and more dependent upon our heavenly Father. So maturity is about being dependent upon Him. Our desperate need for God is always true, but not always felt. Why is that? Because pride keeps us from seeing it. Control is an illusion that suffering snaps us out of like that. When we go through suffering, then we realize, eh, I didn't, you know, we try to keep all of our ducks in a row. We try to have everything work out good. And then all of a sudden, suffering comes in and knocks that away from us. And we realize, ah, I thought I was in control. I'm not. God, help. Guess what? When you say, God, help, you're finally in touch with reality. You never were in control. There's only a little bit that you can control. We are so totally and desperately dependent upon him. They delight in being desperately and totally dependent upon God. That's a humble person. A humble person, someone who delights in being desperately and totally dependent upon God, isn't someone who's always telling you that they're a nobody, but it is someone who is contagiously content in Christ and incredibly interested in the well-being of others. They're too busy looking up at God's glory to look down on others or to feel smug about themselves. They're living in a sense of contentment in him, and then therefore they can think about others because they're filled with, with the glory of God. Uh, let, me, let me share with you a couple more statements that I had written down here just that goes along with that. Um, so in the gospel, our identity is not based on what we achieve, but on what we have, what has been achieved for us. And uh, the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves because we are already proven and secure in Christ. I mean, hey, listen to me. What, what greater value do you need than to have the creator of the universe, the God of the galaxies, and to have him love you, adore you, and give his life for you. That should fill you up and send you out into life, not in, in this deficit mode of trying to fill the void, making every relationship and every job a means to an end and everything that you do, but, but you're operating out of an abundance of his glory. Unbelievably healing. And, and here's the next point. We've got to move on now. I spent plenty of time there. That was just uh, talking about Moses. Now we get actually into the text. Woohoo! And uh, so humble people want to accurately represent God in all they are. So if you have this fullness in Christ, you want to accurately represent God in all that you are. Look at verses 1 and 2 of our text. I have made you like Pharaoh, like God to Pharaoh. Now, in the Hebrew, the word like is not there. So it literally reads, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Now, the translators put like in there so that we wouldn't get confused. Like, oh, look at me, I'm God. No, that's not right. You're not God. You're like God. That's, that's the point. You shall speak all that I command you. So in this Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was considered a god, and he saw himself as a god, and so this is an affront to Pharaoh. When, when uh, Moses shows up and says, hey, I'm speaking on behalf of God, and you need to know this, that God says, let my people go, so they go and worship me. So we as believers represent Christ as Moses was representing God to Pharaoh, 2 Corinthians 5.20. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So you and I are Christ ambassadors. And so being filled up with the glory of God, we want to represent him to the world. We want to show the world our God and what we have in him. Now, what's interesting about this context of, of 2 Corinthians 5.20 being Christ ambassadors, you guys familiar with the context? Verse Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one, five twenty one. It's a phenomenal verse. This is what it says: He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean to be the righteousness of God? Because of the death, the indispensable and sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means the world. That's what it means. <laughs> Believe me. If you understand that, oh my goodness, it will fill you up with the glory. You won't have that conceit in your life. 
Because what, that, what that's saying here is that, that you are justified in God's sight. You don't live to be justified. You are justified. You stand in right relationship with him. That's what it's saying. You're adopted into his family. You're empowered by his Holy Spirit. You are guaranteed a place in heaven. That's what that means. And if you're not living in the reality of that, you're not going to have much to give to the world. See, our concept of God determines not only the quality of our relationship with God and our ability to navigate the difficulties of life, but it also determines what we convey to others about God. Our concept of God. So how's your concept of God? That's why I wanted you to have a high concept of God. In America today, we've got too low of a concept of God. See, your life is the only Bible some people will ever read. And so that's why you hear me say this over and over again. God is most glorified in us. Listen, life's not about you. It's about God. You were created by God for God to give glory to God. And the quicker you move into that, the more you're going to experience fulfillment and fruitfulness unlike you've ever experienced before because you're doing that which you were created to do. Oh my goodness. You were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. God is most glorified in us when we are what? Most satisfied in him. When we are most satisfied in him. And there is a satisfaction in him that all the success in this world can't give you. I don't care how many gold medals you can win in downhill skiing or skating or whatever it might be or luge. That's crazy. Or the skeleton. They're going 80 miles an hour. I forget which one. I think it's the skeleton. That's an appropriate name for that, huh? They're going head first. I think it's the skeleton. They're going head first. And the other one, they're going feet first. 80 miles an hour? No, thank you. And so it doesn't matter. All, all the medals in the world don't compare. All the success in the world. There is a satisfaction in God that all the success in the world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. And that is how we best represent God. If, if you live for God's glory, success won't go to your head and failure won't go to your heart. If you live for God's glory, success isn't going to inflate you. Hey, look at me. Look how great I am. No, no, no. You know that everything that you have has been given to you by God. And failure won't go to your heart. It won't deflate you. Because even in failure and suffering and difficulty, you can still put on display the glory of God. Let me read to you. This is a, from... I really like this quote. I, I did a little bit of paraphrasing and kind of put it all together, but it's actually from his little book, uh, Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And this is what he says. This is a really a good way to represent our Savior. He says, don't you want to be someone who doesn't need honor but isn't afraid of it? Doesn't lust for recognition or frightened to death by it? Someone who can go by a mirror and doesn't admire what they see, but also doesn't cringe. Someone who doesn't sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs. Oh, if I could achieve this or accomplish that, or sitting around beating yourself up over stupid things you have said or done, wouldn't you like to be free? Wouldn't you like to be the athlete who wins the silver and yet be just as excited about the record-breaking athletic accomplishment of the gold medal winner, loving it just for the fact that it was done, whether it was you or him, enjoying people, things, and circumstances just the way you would enjoy a sunrise for what it is, not making it about you or about building your resume in an effort to fill up the emptiness on the inside see glory hunger or this conceit this is how it operates in our heart and if you listen to yourself you're saying this about something if you're not saying this about Christ then you're saying about something if I have that my life has meaning my life has hope my life has my life has happiness and whatever the that is becomes the object of your worship. And we tend to substitute Christ, the object of our worship, for created things. And that's called self-absorption. It's called pride. We make life about ourselves. 
And so humble people want to accurately represent God in all they are. Uh, Humble people have hearts that are listening to and obeying God and not hardening. And we see this contrast throughout verses three through four. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will not listen. Verses 13 and 14, still Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Verse 22, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. That's in in, in our text. Verses, verse six, 10, and 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, this is a mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility because immediately you're thinking, wait a minute, God hardened his heart. He didn't have a choice. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did, okay? Uh, But let me kind of walk you through this. I've already run out of time. (laughs) Welcome to Desert Breeze. Uh, I've already run out of time on this, but let me just talk just very briefly about this and we'll kind of work through the rest of the notes here. Uh, I've never let the clock you know, keep me from doing what I'm going to do, okay? That's typical to every weekend. So uh, this is the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible teaches that historical events are determined by God, divine sovereignty through our choices, human responsibility. If you want to learn more about that, go a couple weeks back, get our app, go a couple weeks back. Exodus 2, God knows, cares, and rules. We talked about the providential hand of God working in our lives. I'd encourage you to do that. But I, I, I was doing a little research on this. I looked at the Bible Project. I also looked at ESV Study Bible and then the Reformation uh, study Bible, and it's interesting to see kind of what they do. The ESV Study Bible actually gives you a chart of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and uh, it talks about how God says, I'm going to harden his heart. He's made that prediction, and the reason for that, he says that, I believe, is that he wants Moses to know this dude's going to be a hard nut to crack, okay, because uh, he's going to resist me, but I'm in control of what's going on. It tells us actually in Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So I I really believe that God is just saying, I'm sovereign. I'm still in control. This guy's going to resist you. I'm going to harden his heart. But when you look at the chart, then you've got this sequence. And in fact, actually, the Bible project says it begins with Pharaoh hardening his own heart towards God in his first encounter in Exodus chapter 5. And you can see that. And then in the first five plagues, he's doing this on his own. And then God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart in the second five plagues. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me over that? So, so according to the Bible Project, this is what they say. This is what they say on that. The point is this. Even though God knew Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him many chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return, and even his advisors think he has lost his mind. It's at that point God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil to his own redemptive purposes. He lures Pharaoh into his own destruction and saves his people. So what he's saying at the front end is like, I'm still in control of all of this, but I'm going to use this all for my redemptive purposes. The Reformation Study Bible puts it this way. God gives Pharaoh the courage to do what he has chosen to do at the outset. God does not force Pharaoh to act contrary to his own will. So God's almost just kind of reinforcing, and I'm going to use that for my redemptive purposes because I'm a God who's sovereign and I'm in control I think there's a number of things that we can learn from that. Given enough time, God will give us what we really want. And here's the warning. There is a point of no return. And so if you come in here week in and week out, or if you hear the gospel message over and over again, and you keep resisting it time and time again, what's happening to your heart? It's becoming hard. Increased exposure, decreased response leads to a hardening of your heart. You just become resistant to the voice of God. You can't even hear his voice. You get to the point where I don't even believe in God anymore. I've seen people go to that degree. That's why it says in Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here's the point. Humble people have hearts that are listening to God and obeying God, not hardening. That's the point. Here's the next one. Humble people know that we don't judge God, he judges us. Verse four, Pharaoh did not listen to you. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Uh, It tells us in Psalm 56 that God is 
God is the judge of the universe. Romans 4.12, it says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Listen, there will be a final exam. I want you to pass the final exam. So let me give you the answers to it, okay, right here. There's only gonna be two questions, two questions for the final exam. When you stand before God, only two questions. Here they are. Here's the first one. What did you do with Jesus? And then what did you do with what I gave you? That's it. Did you accept him or did you reject him? And then what did you do with all that I gave you? You know, all those opportunities and the gifts that I gave you and the way that I wired you up and the way that I uniquely shaped you and the home that I had you raised in and all of those things. And oh, by the way, you were in America. Yeah. So what did you do with that, with that blessing? See, it's, it's our beliefs that determine our eternal destination, either in in heaven or hell, it's our behavior that determines our eternal compensation in heaven or hell. I like it as one writer puts it, the glory of God and the pride of man will collide at one of two crash sites, hell or the cross. In other words, either we will pay for our sins in hell or Christ will pay for our sins on the cross. I choose the cross, how about you? Um, um, that's what I want. I thank God for the cross. I thank him for the righteousness that I have through Jesus Christ. Woo! I'm excited about that. I want, I, and I want to tell the world about that. Here's the next one. Humble people know that Yahweh is God, and they're not giving them great peace. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. D- did you know that there's going to be a, a lot of Egyptians that are going to go with them into their wanderings, heading to the promised land because they've been converted through these plagues? We'll get a chance to see that in the storyline. Now, there's a couple different ways of saying this. You can say it like this, Yahweh is God and I'm not and I'm mad about that. I don't like how he's, my life is going. Or it can go like this, Yahweh is God and I'm not and I'm really happy about that. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? And so if, if, if you just surrender to him and say, you know what, I don't know why this circumstance is working out the way it is, but you're God, I'm not. I don't know why things are going the way they are, but you're God, I'm not. And I trust your loving, wise control in the circumstances of my life for my good and your glory because you're God and I'm not. And I'm good with that and that gives me peace. By the way, pride is at the bottom of worry and bitterness. So how are you doing? We get all stressed out and angry and envious because of pride. I mean, we think God's holding out on us. We just don't trust that he's Yahweh and he's looking out for our best interests and he really truly does love us. And uh, that's why Isaiah 26.3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Here's the next one. Humble people do just as the Lord commanded them. We don't need to talk much about that uh, because we see that in verses 6, 10, and 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. In fact, Psalm 1, 1 through 3 A humble person uh, delights in the law of the Lord. They love having God tell them how to live their life. Thank you, God, for telling me how to live my life. You've laid it out for me in your word, and so I want to follow your word completely and totally because uh, I know you have my best interests at heart. And no one has ever loved me like you, God. And, And your law comes to me out of your perfect love and infinite wisdom. You know what's best for me. And then here's the next one. Humble people are not easily impressed because they know God's power. It's interesting here, this story. I love this story, verses 8 through 12. Moses' staff that became a snake and ate up the snakes of the magicians. Isn't that a great story? The serpent had divine power and authority uh, in the mind of Egyptians according to ancient history. And so Pharaoh wore a serpent on his crown as a symbol of his majesty and deity. The serpent goes back to the garden, by the way. You know that. So this is a big battle between God, the true and living God, and Satan, And so demonic powers, demonic power imitates, perverts, and deceives, but never saves. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Satan's power is real, but not absolute. God's power is greater by far. And this is what it says, that in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, it says that, it actually says you can work miracles and do good deeds and not be a Christian. Because there'll be those that have done all those good things and they'll stand before Christ and Christ say, I don't know you. 
It tells us in Matthew 24, 24, in the last days, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Acts 8, 9 through 11 talks about Simon the magician. He attracted the masses. It tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What am I talking about here? What is this all about? Here's the difference. A humble person doesn't want to be entertained. They want to have an encounter with Christ. And they know the difference. They know the difference. There's a major difference between being entertained and having an encounter with Christ. One is man-centered and it produces pride. The other is God-centered and produces humility. Now listen to me, quick warning here. When you, if you ever leave Desert Breeze and go to another church, you need to ask yourself this question. Is this a man-centered church or a God-centered church? Are they giving me a high view of man or a high view of God? That's really important. More and more in American uh, churches, we have more man-centered churches. It's all about entertainment. If you were to ask most people why they go to a particular church, they they would say, oh, the music, or oh, the preaching, or oh, this or that. Very few would say, it's a place where I encounter God. It's a place where he's transforming my life. It's a major, major difference. If you seek the gifts over the gift giver, you're going to be led astray. Here's the next one. We're almost done. We've almost hit an hour. You guys have hung in there. Here we go. Humble people know that false gods have no power to solve or to save. We're going to skip that one because we're going to talk a lot about that one next week. So fill that in and let's move on to the next one. Here's the next one. Humble people see calamities as opportunities to repent and believe in God. Now, I had somebody come up to me last night. We talked about this. Did you notice this this first plague? And the first group of plagues, probably about the first five or six or seven plagues, it's not only just landing on Pharaoh and also the Egyptians and the Egyptians, but also it's landing on the Israelites. So they're experiencing it too. This isn't good for them. But then later on, I had someone come up to me and say, yeah, actually, it's towards the end of the plagues that God begins to kind of protect his people. But but they're going through this just like the others. And so here's how I would put it. I'm not going to go into all the specifics of the theology of this, is that that this plague is, um, what was the word that I I used uh, for this? Plagues are punitive. It's punitive for the Egyptians and Pharaoh, but it's purifying for the Israelites. And God is using this in their lives as much as he's using it in the lives of the Egyptians. Uh, So in the story of the plagues, either way, every tragic event is a warning that final judgment is coming. And so you got to be careful about saying, well, that's the judgment of God. Well, a lot of the tragedies that we've had, especially 9-11, I heard actually some uh, TV preachers say, well, that's God's judgment. Wait, wait, wait. There was actually Christians that went down in that. So you're saying that's, that it's all God's judgment upon all those people? I says, I don't think you can make that distinction because the Bible says that uh, the righteous will suffer. It also says that the, the unrighteous will prosper. We see that around us. So you can't go by your circumstances whether or not God is pleased or displeased with you. What do you go by? Not your circumstances. You go by his word. You always go back to his word. And regardless of your circumstances, so bad circumstances are punitive for people that don't know him, but they're purifying for people that do know him. And that's what a humble person understands. They see calamities as opportunities to repent and believe in God. Here's the last one. Humble people are teachable, but all the evidence in the world won't convince a person with a hard heart. And that's what you see in Pharaoh in verse 23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. John 3, 19 says, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world. Men prefer darkness over light. So here's, here's the bottom line. This is what you need to know. What gets us out of our self-absorption is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for us that ruins you for anything else. And this is what it looks like, Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you have received my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making 
making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, and if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, intimacy with him. Let's pray. So, Father God, you, you have opponents, but you have no rivals. You alone are worthy of all worship, praise, honor, and glory. Pride is ultimately a worship issue. We cannot think, we cannot think about ourselves less until we think about something else more. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes to more and more of your glory and beauty in the person and work of Christ Jesus so that we are ever more God-absorbed and ever less self-absorbed for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.